Amen. Open your Bibles to Acts chapter 3. We are finishing up our series on prayer entitled Unspoken, right? These things that we neglect in our life, these, these, these very crucial elements of prayer uh, that we just don't pray for enough. Um, I would argue that we don't pray for anything enough, uh, but we certainly don't pray enough for these specific areas in our life. We've talked about how prayer is a revelation of God's presence, right? I mean, the heart of prayer is God's Spirit with us, His presence abiding with us. We hope that you feel His presence here where two or more are gathered. Uh, we, we talked about praying for God's perspective. Oftentimes in our life, we don't view things from God's perspective. Listen, a lot of us, well-meaning people, it's not that we want to do wrong, right? It's that we are clouded in our minds. Uh, the human perspective has clouded what is God's clear intent and His vision and plan for our life. Uh, last week, we talked about praying for God's people, uh, praying for His church, praying for the mission and direction of our church, and praying for one another, uh, lifting one another up. They will know that we're Christians by our love for one another. And so uh, to, we're going to continue that as we pr talk about praying for God's power in our life, praying for God's power. So when I was a kid... Uh, my dad told stories that I was just uh, enthralled in. Before he became a salesman, he held a sales position at Bob Wallace Appliance for a while, uh, and then he became a pastor. He, he went into full-time ministry. Uh, before that, he was a jack-of-all-trades, and he, he kind of did a little bit of everything, that typical 20-something-year-old male that just didn't know exactly what he wanted to do and did a whole bunch of different jobs. He determined there were plenty of things he did not want to do uh, through that time. But one of the coolest stories he told during that time, and I actually had to text him this morning to, forget, to get him to remind me of the details of it because I didn't want to sit here and lie to you. I told somebody at the first service, sometimes I feel like y'all just take what I say is gospel, right? And like, oh, yeah, well, it definitely happened because Alan said it did, you know? So, you know, you can test me. You can, you can, you can fact check some of this stuff. Uh, but my dad uh, worked construction and uh, specifically was talking about a time when I was a kid. Uh, he was talking about a time when he was working on some apartment complexes off of Whitesburg Drive. He grew up in Huntsville. And they had to get into the, the sewer or whatever, had to, had to get something going with the water. And so it required that they bust holes in rock that were on the ground. And so he got an opportunity to work with a construction company that may or may not have been, should have been dealing with some of the things they were dealing with, but took dynamite, drilled it into rock in the ground, stuck dynamite in there, and you know, brought back the fuse, and he got to actually say the words that every man has ever always wanted to say and actually mean, right? We say it all the time, but he actually got to say the words. Men, fire in the hole. Dad hiding behind this, got to say, fire in the hole, and push the plunger, and boom, 
Now, he said it was obvious they probably shouldn't have been doing what they were doing, at least the way they were doing it, because a giant piece of rock shot from the earth and landed on their excavator, thus ending their day. But, uh, but he was telling the story. I was like, man, that is the coolest story ever. Like, I can just... Don't you remember as a kid like playing with the M80s and then they got outlawed and then you found that guy that knew how to get his hands on M80s? And you're like, oh, no, no, this isn't those little firecrackers you got. No, no, these are M80s. This is, this is a quarter stick of dynamite, baby. You know, because it's everybody's dream. Everybody, every guy's dream to blow stuff up. That's just cool. I'll never forget when I was at my grandparents' house one time. They lived off of Pulaski Pike. Uh, and I heard, as we were eating, I heard what sounded like thunder, but it was sunny outside. We run outside and look back, and the rock quarry in Huntsville is like borders their land. And so like, it looked like our country was under attack, but they were blowing this rock up at the top of the mountain. It looked like missiles hitting it. Uh, and I was just like, man, this is the coolest thing. We talk about the power of God. The word power, dudamus power, might or power, is used 119 times in the New Testament. The word is dudamus, and it's where we get the English word dynamite, right? One of the most powerful things we can think of, right, to literally split rock and foundations, God uses, right, in, in this terminology of the New Testament church and the power that he has made available to us through the gospel. And so to, to dive into that, what, is, what does it look like to pray for God's power in our life, this dudamous power in our life? We find it in Acts chapter 3. We see God at work first in the past. We see God do something really, really cool. We see his power at work in the New Testament church, right? Like Jesus has already gone. He has left physically the earth. And his presence has fallen in the form of the Holy Spirit and indwelt the hearts of believers. And this was a game changer for them. But look at what we see in Acts chapter 3. Now it's not Jesus and the disciples. Now it's Peter and John. Now, Peter and John, in verse 1, were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called Beautiful Gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. This was the most prominent gate. This was prime location for a beggar, right? Like, if you wanted any spot at any gate, you wanted at the Beautiful Gate. It was the most ornate. It was the most prominent position that people would use. Uh, seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him. Big no-no, right? He directed his gaze at him, as did John, and they said, look at us. Now, if y'all judge me, it's because you're lying to yourself. All of y'all know what it's like to be pumping gas at a gas station. And that sketchy guy starts walking up. And there is one rule, and there is one rule only, other than pump as fast as you can and get in your car, right? Don't make eye contact, right? Because it doesn't matter how many, there's a chance he's going to go to somebody else. But if you make eye contact, buddy, laser beam, like he is just tractor beam, he's at you, right? And he's asking you, and he's got, you know, the story of the most horribly, you know, 
tragic thing that's ever happened to humanity. And, you know, and then, you, then, you're in, then you're stuck. Then you've got to pray about, is this what God wants me to do? You know, and so all this thing, but it's eye contact, right? Well, this is what they invite. They see this beggar here asking alms, and they make eye contact with him. And look what he says. He fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. When you look at him, they go, I've got him, right? Like, I'm, I'm waiting for you to come off it a little bit, right? Like, give me some money. And this is what they said, the iconic words that you and I have heard before. Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. We probably memorize it in the King James Version. Silver and gold hath I none, but what I have I giveth unto you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, right? And then he walketh, right? Like, we know this story. And he took him by the right hand and he raised him up and immediately his feet and his ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God, completely, miraculously healed, not just enough to walk, but leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple, asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. They didn't just heal a random beggar. They healed a beggar who had become Jerusalem famous. You know those people, the locally famous people. As I planted a church in Elmont, I learned locally famous people that I get to know. And you get used to certain famous people, locally famous people, in their locations. If you go to a volleyball game or a softball game and Mary Jane Hobbs is not in the dugout or on the field somewhere, something is wrong, right? Something is totally out of place. Why? Because she is Elkmont famous. If you uh, decide to go over the crazy 15-mile-an-hour speed limit on Vaughn Road when you're trying to drop your kids off for elementary school, you're going to get the blue lights from John Donnie Johns who's sitting where? In the rec league parking lot, right? You just know that's where they're going to be, right? And, it's just, and if he's not there, something's out of place. If you roll up on a fender bender... You first responders will appreciate this. They did in the first service. You roll up on a fender bender. Something is out of place if Larry Pilant isn't standing in front of that intersection going, <laughs> right? Come on through. And, he, and, and he's the most approachable guy in the world, but you wouldn't know it from his face in that moment because he is wearing a scowl, right? And if he's not there in Elkmont, something is out of place. This beggar was out of place. He was Jerusalem famous, and he was out of place. He was not in his spot at the temple gate called Beautiful, and people began to notice. They began to take note of what was going on. When everyone saw this man healed, they were astonished. This is the guy that's supposed to be here, but he's not. He's jumping, and he's praising God in the temple. And so Peter seizes the opportunity to begin to share the gospel with these people. The rest of Acts chapter 3 is the message that he preaches in Solomon's portico, the largest place where you could talk to the largest number of people at one time. He begins to share. It draws a crowd. And Peter, in true Peter form, after the resurrection, he be, or after the ascension, Peter decides to tell the crowds about 
Jesus. And you would expect, man, if somebody's been healed, you'd expect a TV show, right? Like, you'd expect to be on the local news at least. But the local authorities find out. Look at Acts 4, verse 1. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Why were they annoyed? They weren't annoyed that people were getting healed. Yay, kudos, that's great. They were annoyed because the gospel was being presented. And if Romans 1 tells us anything, it is that it is the, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. The dunamis power of God, right, is unlocked through the power of the gospel. It wasn't the healing of the lame man that, that drew the naysayers. It was the gospel that drew them. He was proclaiming Jesus, the resurrection of the dead, specifically the Sadducees who taught against bodily resurrection, right, were totally against what was going on. And they arrested them, right? Thanks for healing this guy now, you know, healed this, this Jerusalem famous guy, and now you're going to prison. And they arrested them and they put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. What was happening? A movement was happening. Momentum was shifting in the favor of the church, and the religious rulers of the day were not happy with it. So what did they do? When Mo's going the opposite way, you do something to affect momentum and get it going your way. So they threw the guys in prison. That'll shut them up. Right? They, they throw the guys in prison, but before they do, 5,000 people came to Christ. Now, we make a lot of hay about Pentecost. And when all of the nations were gathered in Jerusalem, and they each heard in their own tongues, and, and for good reason, because this is when the Holy Spirit fell on believers. But what it tells us in Acts chapter 2 is only 3,000 were saved. Now we go, only 3,000. It's just 3,000. Small potatoes, right? 3,000 3, people, 3,000 souls is the word that's used. So women and children and men, 3,000 people. In this context, I don't understand. It's blew my mind when I studied it because we talk about Pentecost as this massive movement and soul winning. It's not even the largest response of an invitation. Just two chapters later... Peter gives another invitation and 5,000 men. Now, some believe that was men and women. There's Greek nuances and stuff. Not important. But very possibly it could have been 5,000 men plus women and children on top of that. Regardless, it was the greatest movement of response to an invitation ever uttered in the New Testament. At least in the book of Acts. In the history of the New Testament church. Five thousand were added. It's interesting to me, right? It's interesting to me that the first real persecution that is recorded in Acts of the New Testament church brought about the largest harvest. 
This was the first time that the church ever really experienced persecution after being a follower of Jesus, after Jesus has left. Now, obviously, Jesus was persecuted. Obviously, to the point of death, even the death of the cross, right? He has ascended. This is the first real persecution that we have in Acts chapter 3 and 4 of the church being persecuted. And so, the first persecution of the church brought about the largest harvest of the church. And what we see when when we study church history is that that ripple effect is consistent throughout the history books. That the places in the world where the church is growing the most are the places in the world that are persecuted the most. I want you to understand something because I think we need to understand and have a larger perspective. It is easy for us to get stuck in a Elkmont perspective, to get stuck in a southern perspective, to get stuck in a geologically centric, you know, uh, geographically centric focus. And so our country, and we look at the around the country, our the church is diminishing greatly in uh, in the United States. It is declining. The numbers, at least, are declining. Right, the trends are not good. More and more people are 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 leaving the faith. Right, and our uh, let churches are getting smaller and smaller and smaller. Right, like that's that's a trend in the United States. It's documented, Barnum research, all this kind of stuff. Right, but you need to understand, just because the church is declining on this continent does not mean that the church is declining. In fact. The church is growing more today than it ever has before. It's just not growing where you live. It's not growing where I live. The places today where the church is growing the greatest are in the places that are experiencing the greatest persecution. Why is that? We see it. We see where it drives the believers in the New Testament to. But why is that? In our comfort, it is not comfort and religious freedom that causes the church to flourish. It is persecution and hardship that causes the church to flourish. We all of history backs this up. There are outlying exceptions. By and large, it is consistent even back to the New Testament. The first persecution of the New Testament church without the physical presence of Jesus there was the greatest harvest of souls in that day. And so let's look secondly then at our work in the present. Our work in the present. Acts chapter 4, verses 23 to 31. When they were released, they went where? To their friends. Who were their friends? The church. They didn't go to their buddies that were hanging out at some place they didn't have any business hanging out at. They didn't go even to necessarily family members. They went to where their friends were. As we talked about last week, the bond was tight of koinonia, 
fellowship, of community. This week, if you are in our men's and women's study, we talked about it last week. The men talked about it last week. The women, you studied it this week about fellowship and community in the body of Christ. This is essential to who we are as believers, right? And so after they had been persecuted, after they were released on their own recognizance, they went home, they went back to their friends, and they told them everything that happened. They ran to their community. My friend, you will never be all that you can be for the gospel unless you have community that encourages you to be all that you can be for the gospel. So they ran to their friends. They ran to the church. And the chief priests and the elders said, and they told them everything. They reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, when they heard it, They didn't hug on them and say, oh, it's going to be okay. It's just like that sometimes. Man, that's really hard. And I'm glad it didn't happen to me. Or, man, come here and let me me make you feel better. Let me help heal some of your boo-boos. No, what happened was when they came to God's people and reported what had happened, the people of God recognized that this was the norm. And they began to seek God. When they heard it, all that were gathered, those that had been persecuted, Peter and John, and all of the believers lifted up their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who made the mouth of our father David, your servant, who said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles reign, rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. They quote from Psalm chapter 2. Again, God's people knowing God's word, praying God's word in their own context. That's powerful as well. But they pray Psalm chapter 2, and what they're praying is, God, I see a trend. In the Old Testament, it was all about the Davidic reign. And David says that all the Gentiles are out to get me. They're out to end the Davidic reign. Why? Because David was the people of promise. One day the Messiah would come through the lineage of David. And so if we can shut down that lineage, then we can shut down these these people that are supposed to be blessings. And it's just funny, he says, all of these nations, all of these Gentiles, all of these people groups are against me. Them, then now the church, looking at that, looking at David, said, we are seeing this trend in our own lives. Listen to what they say. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate. Right, These Gentile rulers who could have stopped the crucifixion, but they didn't. They were aligned against him. right? Along with the Gentiles, and then, shocker, now the people of Israel. Now it's not just from outside of the ranks of Israel. Now it is from within the ranks of Israel. Israelites are setting themselves against the plans and the purposes of God to do what your hand and your plan has predestined to take place. God, you have a direction that you are having us to go and everyone seems against it. This is what they are praying. This is what we see from the New Testament church. 
Look at verse 29. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. While you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. Physically shaken by the power of God. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Now, there's a portion of Scripture, and I'm just going to be honest with you in my study, where, where I studied, the direction that I went. When I read in verse 29, when it says, Lord, look upon their threats, I began to dig a little deeper in that. Because I began to think, well, surely, you know, look upon their threats. Like, surely there is some alternate meaning or some Greek uh, difference. That, like, it doesn't just mean to look, but to address it, like to deal with it. Like, look upon their threats and take care of them for us, right? Like, maybe there's that type of thing. Let me tell you, as long as you studied as much, as many word studies as I looked at, nowhere in the Greek language is anything other than... Give attention to their threats. They're not asking God to remove the threat. They're not asking God to take away the people who would throw them in prison. They're not asking God to take away the difficulty that they would encounter in life. Whereas we would pray, God, eliminate this person. Eliminate these people who are making it difficult, who are, who are hurting me. Remove the pain from me. They said, no, pay attention to it, right? Look upon their threats. And what we want you to do as your body is to look upon their threats only in as much as we need boldness to persevere through them. Give us increased boldness. Don't remove the people that make it difficult, but give us boldness despite difficulty. David Platt famously met with a man in the secret church and he began, the, the man, I believe it was from Burma, asked him, who was being persecuted at the time, he said, listen, I pray for the church in the United States. David Platt was like, that's great. Thank you. We need all the prayer. We, I pray that God would do a work there. Thank you. Awesome. And he says, I pray that God would bring persecution to the church. Which point David Platt goes, time out. Why in the world would you pray something like that? But what we see in the New Testament church, what we see in these persecuted areas and regions throughout history, is there is not the ability for people to run to their own strength and their own power to provide for them in those areas, in those times in history. But the people in the New Testament, the reason why they gathered to pray is it was all that they could do. God, we are powerless over this circumstance. God, pray that we would be faithful through it. 
Pray that we would be faithful despite the circumstances, despite the difficulty. Don't remove the persecution. The persecution is what keeps us on our knees. It continues to drive us to you. Believe what we see in the church of the United, in the United States, in this continent, in contexts like this. So we see a people who are inoculated to the power of God. Why? Because we've got just enough taste of our own power. And we are drunk on it. That's why we don't pray. That's why when I meet with a group of men, almost without fail, without exception, the number one thing that is a struggle in their life is their prayer life. Because we don't believe that we are powerless outside of the movement of God. There is a felt comfort and safety that we don't see in the New Testament church. And so we work. We seek God and we pray for boldness. Maybe God's never going to remove the difficulty. Maybe because it's the very thing that keeps you tied to him. But the faithfulness of God's power is seen most prominently in the boldness of the church. Where do we see God's power? We see it when we are faithful and bold to proclaim his gospel. One commentary said this was not a prayer for relief, but a prayer for courage. An excellent pattern for the modern church. The prayer assumes dependence and faith. These believers expected to do nothing by themselves. Everything rested in the sovereign power of God and in the name of Jesus. They were desperate in prayer. Can I tell you today, will you believe me today, that we are just as desperate for God's power as we have ever been? When you awake tomorrow to go to your jobs to provide for your families, when you lean on the child care and the, the instruction, the educational instruction of your children and teenagers, though it appears like we've got things under control, we are in desperate need for God's power. We need Him every so thirdly and finally, we see God's work in the future. God's work in the present, our work, our God's work in the past, our work in the present, and God's work in the future. Look at Acts chapter 4, verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed, the full number, how many is that? Well, we know it's at least 120 because that's who was there on the day of Pentecost. We know it was at least 3,000 because that's who was saved on Pentecost. And we know it's at least now 5,000 more. So we're talking about the potential of 10,000 plus people. Numbers were added daily, those who were being saved. Acts 2 tells us that as well. So we're talking about 10,000 or more people are agreeing together, believed in of one heart and one soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they all had in common everything. 
And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them. So what did the prayer produce in them? It produced boldness in what areas? Number one, we see boldness in unity. There was an incredible unity in the church. 10,000 people without division. Why? Because they were about one thing. They were about the gospel of Christ. And it is amazing how people who are rowing the boat have very little time to rock the boat. When we are pushing toward a kingdom agenda, we don't have all the time to debate theological nuances and differences. We don't have time. And listen, I'm not saying it's, it's bad to know what you believe and why you believe it and to differ on, on certain parts of interpretation. What I'm saying is the church has become famous for what we're against, but God has called us for the church in the world to be known for what we are for. And they had one thing in common, but that thing was so big that it didn't matter what else was going on. They were united together in the gospel. This is the power of the gospel. The power of the gospel isn't just to save people. It is to keep people. It is to unite people. It is to gather people. It is to empower people. They had incredible unity. They had power in the meeting of needs. None of them had needs. Why? Because what's mine is yours. We say cute things in the South like mikasa es su casa, right? Like, and that's cute. And that sounds good. We just don't always live that, right? What happens if people actually started treating your house? Well, let me tell you what. If my kids come over and treat your house like my house, we're going to have big problems, right? And by the way, you might have some big problems, right? But everything was provided for. Why? No one had possessions. It wasn't theirs. It was yours as well. Needs were met. There was incredible unity. And then lastly, the power of God was seen daily. How? Through the gospel. Through the power of God that brought salvation to the Jews first and then to the Gentiles. This is the power that we are desperate for in our churches. Otherwise, we're going to get divided and mad at each other for things that are less than the gospel. We're going to be at each other's throats. We're going to be so concerned with what goes on inside these four walls that we miss the lost and dying world on their way to hell outside these four walls. The gospel is the power of God and we are desperate for it. Desperate. And so I want to end today with a story. Is anyone in this room, I'm just curious, does anyone in, in, in this room know the name you don't have to know him person, know anything about him, but knows the name Charles Finney. You've heard that name before. You, you've heard of that pastor. Okay, there's, 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 there's hands. For you, that's, if you study church history, Charles Finney is synonymous with the Second Great Awakening. The Second Great Awakening happened 1790-ish, 
to like 18, 20, 30, 40, depending on how far you want to stretch it, um, where the country returned back to God. And, and the first great awakening was like Jonathan Edwards and sinners in the hand of an angry God and those guys, right, up in New, New England. Well, this movement began in the South, and it became, began with camp meetings. And so Charles Finney was probably the most prominent uh, figure at this time. What he would do is he would go to these towns, and the whole town would come out. They'd meet under a giant tent. Thus, camp meetings, tent meetings, right? By the way, the reason why we, uh, some churches still do the Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday revivals is because of the Second Great Awakening. That's what Charles Finney did. He'd, get up, he'd go there. He'd preach every night, sometimes in the morning, but every night. And then people would respond, and he'd do it again the next night, and the next night, and the next night. And it was said in the Second Great Awakening that Charles Finney, his ministry was so powerful that if people in the community, would, when they came to it, they were so moved that like the brothels and the bars in those towns would be put out of business. So like if Charles Finney decided he was coming to your town in the great time of the Great Awakening, then if you were a bar owner or a brothel owner or whatever, just knew you were going to be out of the job. Because people would come from all around to see the spectacle. They would hear about the power of God. The power of God would move on their lives and they would be saved. Not to go back to their old lifestyles, but they were changed. Putting these places of ill repute out of business. Many people know the name Charles Finney. But I would dare say that anyone in this room knows the name Daniel Nash. Daniel Nash was a failed pastor in this same time. He was a failed pastor. He got a church and he led it straight into the ground. He was a loser and a failure by the world's standards. But Daniel Nash saw what Charles Finney was doing, recognized the anointing of God on Charles Finney's life, and Daniel Nash took it upon himself to be an incredible intercessor for, Dan for Charles Finney. Daniel Nash would find out how long Charles Finney was going to be in a community. Whether it was a few days, whether it was a few weeks, he would go and he would, he would go however many days that Charles Finney was planning to be there, he would go that many days beforehand. And he would go into a hotel. He would go into somebody's basement. Sometimes very, very meager accommodations. And he would begin to fast. And he would begin to pray. It was said that he wouldn't eat a morsel of food until the last amen was said at the, at the camp meeting. I want to read you a story from Charles Finney, an eyewitness account. He says this, on one occasion, this is Charles Finney speaking, when I got to town to start a revival, a lady contacted me who ran a boarding house. She said, Brother Finney, do you know of Father Nash? He and two other men have been at my boarding house for the last three days, but they haven't eaten a bite of food. I opened the door and checked on them because I could hear them groaning inside and I saw them down on their faces. They have been this way for three days, lying prostrate on the floor and groaning. 
I thought something awful must have happened to them. I was afraid to go in, and I didn't know what to do. Would you please come see about them? She's asking Charles Finney to make a hospital visit to her house. Like, I'm worried for these guys. COVID-19 before COVID-19. Will you please come and say a prayer for them or something? And he said, no, it isn't necessary. They have a spirit of prayer. I realize the need of God's working, so I send godly Father Nash on in advance to pray down the power of God into the meetings. Charles Finney wasn't trusting in the power of his oratory skill. Charles Finney wasn't trusting in his ability to manipulate the emotions of people to mistake them into some false conversion. Charles Finney was convinced that the power of God came through prayer and he trusted in a nobody. Daniel Nash to be an intercessor for them. While it was going on, he'd be interceding. He'd be fasting He'd be praying and he'd be weeping so that the power of God would fall. You can see Daniel Nash's tombstone. I did not do enough research on this, and I apologize for that, but it is, there is a, you can go and see this headstone. I believe it's in like the Carolinas. Uh, Daniel Nash, pastor, 1816 to 1822. Y'all, that's not the date. The big date on that is not the date that he was born and the date that he died. That was the dates that he was in ministry. That he was interceding for Charles Finney in the Second Great Awakening in these camp meetings. It says that he was a laborer with Finney, mighty in prayer. Can that be said of you? Can that be said of me? Those who are convinced of the power of God will be mighty in prayer. Can I just tell you? If this church is to be anything for the kingdom of God, it's not going to be done because we have a jam-up worship pastor or a decent communicator or a great children's ministry or preschool ministry or we give sundrop away. It's not going to be those reasons. It's because people recognize how desperate we are for the power of God in prayer. So here's what I want to ask you to do. Now, we've given these prayer prompts in the bulletins. They're still there, and we want you to use those daily. But by way of illustration today, I want to make you the illustration. When we leave today, God's going to do amazing work, an amazing work in our Easter service. We get an opportunity in Easter. Maybe why why Easter, why Easter? Because we get an opportunity to to get people who are just there to see the spectacle. Or the cultural nuance of the day says, you need to go to church on Easter. But they'll be there. And they'll hear the gospel. And we need to be interceding for those people, for our community. If we're in the community and for the community, we may we take it off our sign if we're not willing to intercede for those who need the gospel of Jesus. 
And I want to ask you, do you and your family, when we leave today, I know some of you are volunteers. I know we got a meeting afterwards. After the meeting, I want you to do this. I want you to go up, and we're going to be at the new gym. And we're going to be in the adjacent hallway right beside it. So if you're looking at the new gym, the hallway on this side, facing you where we, where we pick up for pre-K, that's the hallway that we're going to be in. Now, we're not going to have keys to the building or anything like that. Whether you park, whether you decide to walk around the building with your families, or you just decide to pray in one place, I want us to intercede today. At some point, I want us to intercede for what, for what God's going to do in Easter service. Intercede for the lost in our community. Intercede for those that are walking a guilty distance that need restoration. I want us to stand in the gap for those and then we'll use those prayer prompts for the rest of the week to continue to intercede for what God's going to do. I truly believe this is what God has called us to do as His church. And I want to encourage you, I want to challenge you to do it as well. Okay? But with every head bowed and eye closed, as we transition to a time of response, if you're here today and you don't have a relationship with Christ, I want you to know that God loves you. He sent his son to die on the cross to save you from your sins. And you can have new life with him through a relationship with his perfect son. If you will surrender your life, surrender your sin, give up of yourself, and you will accept him as your Lord and Savior, you can have eternal life. I want you to know if you're here and you don't have that relationship intact, I would love to talk to you about how you can know that you have a relationship with Jesus Christ. So if that's you, in just a moment I'm going to pray and say amen and you've got an opportunity to respond. I'm here at the front. would love to talk to you about how you can know that you have that relationship secure. And I would invite you to do just that. To respond to Jesus today. Maybe you're here and maybe you need to respond in other ways. Maybe you need to get your baptism in line. Maybe you need to, to take that first step of obedience that God calls us to do and to be baptized. Man, we would love to talk to you about that and plan out a time that we could take care of that for you. Maybe you need to join what God's doing here. Maybe you need accountability to be plugged into a church home. We would love to talk to you about that as well. Don't leave this place without doing business. This altar is going to be open. Maybe you've got somebody already that's laid on your heart that you know that you need to get to service next week to hear the gospel. Maybe God's called you to reach them. Maybe you need to pray and intercede for them. This altar is be open in this time of response as we sing. Father, we love you. We thank you, Lord, for how you show your love to us. We thank you for how you move in power. God, may you awaken us to our incredible need and desperation for you. And that flavor everything we do as your church. God, you give of yourself and you give it freely. So Lord, we celebrate that together as your church. We love you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Would you stand to your feet? As we sing, would you come? Whatever decision needs to make, would you, you need to make, would you make it today?